0: come now to the preaching of the word of God. We've been going verse by verse through the gospel of Luke and moving through chapter 23. We come to the end of that chapter today, a chapter filled with great, great portraits of faithfulness that Luke draws for us. And we come now to Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 56, the most, most unnoticed, but the most momentous funeral service In universal history, the burial of Jesus. Let us hear the word of God together. Luke writes for us Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. This is God's time-arcing word. May he reveal its truth to us today in power. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. You can be seated Well, uh, one of my daughters, Audrey, is an actor, and uh, she uh, majored in that in college and and uh, ever since has been uh, well she 's been an actor since she was a kid <laughs> at home and then for real in different plays, countless plays and, and a trained singer as well in opera and other, other genres, so just tremendously talented. So she's been acting most of her life, and uh, she now acts and directs uh, locally here in, in a number of the venues here in our area, and uh, it's really fun to see that happen for her. Uh, she likes to keep her hand in when, when uh, it's kind of quiet out there, and so lately she just took a... Uh, well, she took, you don't. I wouldn't call it a role because she's in a play that's uh, that's happening soon in the area. And uh, she's actually playing seven different characters. And for her, that's a record. She's, she's at seven different walk ons. And that's very unlike what she's done before. Uh, and I asked her about it the other day and, and how fulfilled she was. Because I want to know how that even works, but it's the way the play was written. It's, it's a style of playwriting, I guess. And, and she says, well, it is a little different. I don't get to develop and engage in one character. I don't get to live their story, but I'm doing it because I like the overall story, the overall story. And I thought about that in relationship to the people we'll be looking at today, as we've been looking at the different characters of Calvary in this small miniseries called Tales from Calvary. And and I realized that in these stories in particular that we're going to look at today as we finish the chapter, um, they, they reveal the fact that Christians, were part of the greatest story, aren't we? There can be no greater story ever written. It never even entered the mind of man, the scripture says, this great plan of salvation to rescue lost people that God himself authored before the foundation of the world. It's the greatest story. And... Uh, we are part of it. You could call it God's glory story of redeeming people. His glory story, it's the way Ephesians 1 tells us, he will receive resounding glory forever and ever because of his great vision to redeem lost, wrecked people and to do it through the gift of his son. So that's the greatest story that we could ever be involved in and we all have a role in it. We are called to have a role in it as disciples and We all have parts to play, not only as a way of life. I hope you're walking as a disciple, but there are also moments in life, life encounters where, uh, well, you never know when you're going to be called on stage. That's another way to put it. You never know when you're going to get an opportunity, when you're going to be called on stage in something that you begin to understand either in the moment or looking back on it sometime later, God was working. You were involved in that. And I think that's the way it was with the final set of people in Calvary's cast of players here that we've been looking at. You know that we've been watching really since verse 26 of the chapter how Luke in his special writer's style tells the story and reveals what God wants him to reveal, but he does it by highlighting the human uh, dynamics. He, he paints portraits uh, through the characters involved in such a way that more than any of the other gospel writers, we get the people and so these tales from Calvary have covered all the different folks that have walked across the stage, and they all got called uh, called to be involved in in this great. Uh, cast of, of characters. Uh, we've seen an unsuspecting North African Jewish convert named Simon of Cyrene who had traveled about a thousand miles maybe to get to his very first Passover only as he walked into the city in the early morning to be pulled aside to have a Roman spear blade placed on his shoulder and to be pulled out into the street and to have the crossbar of Christ placed on his shoulder's And he was led not to the temple where he wanted to go to celebrate. He was led to Calvary to watch Christ's sacrifice. And we know very probably he was led into the kingdom because of what he saw. So we began with the story of an unsuspecting North African. And we went all the way through last time to the story of a very sophisticated centurion, the total social opposite who now stands at the foot of the cross, having watched Christ from the very arrest in the garden all the way through the majesty of his trials and his Calvary experience. And this sophisticated centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God, and we believe also he may have stepped into a kingdom relationship. We won't know till we get to heaven, but I think the evidence is there. So all this spectrum of our society in these tales from Calvary. Today we end the chapter with two more unknowns because all of these were people pulled essentially off the street out of the rhythm of life into this incredible hour. Two more unknowns, they're walk-ons and they have very short parts. Joseph and the women who followed Jesus who came to the tomb. So we're going to look at each of these, and just like I've done with the others, I'm going to kind of go through the text with you, and we'll, we'll observe some realities about these people. Just the, the, the clarity of the text telling us what happened and what they did and what, a little bit about them. And then we're going to have s- a chance to, to gain some reflections about what their decisions meant and how that relates to when we face similar spiritual opportunity, because you may be called on stage for God, too. I know you will. You're his servant, and he wants to use you. So let's walk through these two to get together. So two aspects to my message today, two tales to tell as I finish this mini-series. First of all is the tale of Joseph of Arimathea. Look in your Bibles, Luke 23, and uh, we see in verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph. In other words, he's called on stage. He's called Joseph. Into this great moment after the death of Jesus. So, again, what are the realities about him? And then some reflections. As we begin to get started talking about the realities that the Scripture tells you here, let me just answer a a question or two about the the man. This man named Joseph, um, don't know a lot about him. This is the only place he appears in Scripture, although he appears four times. Each one of the four gospel writers thought his role on stage was significant enough that they all four him. That's not true of every character in the gospels, right? So this is his one part in the play, but all four gospel writers talk about, and what do we know? Well, Joseph was a very common name. It was, of course, the name of our Lord's earthly legal father, Joseph. Very common Jewish name, nothing to be found there. He was from a town that was so small that no no archaeologists have really been able to find it today. Arimathea. Our best guess is that it was just a little bit north of Jerusalem, almost like a suburb, a small suburb of Jerusalem. And he was part of Jerusalem's orbit because we do know that he was a member of the council, it says here in verse 50. He was a member of the council. What's the council? Well, we've already run into them a lot. It was the group of Jewish leaders known as the Sanhedrin. 70 scribes, priests, and, and well-regarded Jewish leaders, and then one high priest. So there was a total of 71 of them. We've met them so far because they've attacked Jesus throughout his ministry, particularly in Jerusalem. They arranged the betrayal of Jesus. Then they carried out the three false trials of Jesus under the cover of darkness. All of that happened in the hall of the Sanhedrin. They called it the palace of polished stones there in the temple. And so these are the people that condemned Christ. Now, we'll notice a little later that Joseph had not, verse 51, consented to their decision. More on that later. But the point I'm making as we get to know him is that he was very influential, very successful, very well regarded, a Jew of Jews. And Matthew tells us that he was also wealthy. So wealthy, in fact, that he owned his own rock-hewn tomb very close to the city, which cost a ton of money. In real estate, it's location, 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 right? Right? guess it related to where your tomb was, too. And so he owned a tomb very close to the the proximity of where Jesus was crucified. That is going to be a factor in all of this. And he owned that tomb, and it was an empty tomb. He had bought it, and it had been made for his family and for himself, but no one lay there. You will see how prophetically important that one small detail is in a few moments in the great story. So that's kind of the, the questions that you might have about who Joseph was. Let's go to the realities. And there are three things that I see that were realities about him. The, the Bible here talks to us a lot about his character. It's just a few verses, but his character shines through. Oh, to have a life. that if there, if there are only two or three verses that described you in the Bible, wouldn't you want them to describe the greatness of your character? Not all of us could make that one. Joseph here does so what are the realities there are three the first I would just use the word character he had deeply good character look at the text now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea he was a member of the council that's his social bona fides that's what he was looked at socially but from the eyes of God he was a good and righteous man Two great qualities that described him. He was good. What did that mean? And how is it different from righteous? Agathos in the Greek, it meant good in heart intrinsically good not just good when people were watching not just good in one part of your life but a wreck in others he was consistently good at heart intrinsically good that's what people knew about him and that's what god saw in him the idea of uh, of good here with agathos however is goodness in action this is important good and doing good is the idea of the greek word And that is obviously on display here because here Joseph, apart from anyone else, steps up to do this dangerous but loving work of service for Jesus. So he was good in heart. I guess you could call him usefully good. He he was the one that you knew would step up and live out his life in goodness. So that was one aspect of him. But he was also righteous. And you think, well, aren't those the same thing? Well, no, when the Bible uses different words, it's not because God is repeating himself necessarily. It's because there's a potential distinction. The word righteous, dikaios, came from a root word that meant right or just. And it had to do with your ethics and your morals. So goodness was an attitude of heart, a devotion to others. Righteous was that he was righteous in looking at right and wrong now there's two ways to be righteous and Jesus pointed this out many times because the religious leaders that were had just crucified Jesus took pride in the fact that they were righteous But they were outwardly righteous, Jesus called them. He says, you are men who appear outwardly righteous. This is Matthew 23, if you ever looked it up. You appear outwardly righteous to people, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So you can put on a righteous front through a religious life, but you cannot be morally right within. You can live that double life. And if you've got a religious pedigree, you can really live it because people really won't question you. And Jesus said there's a great danger in that because you can go away, he said in Matthew 23, into eternal punishment. There's a different way of being righteous. And Jesus called it the righteousness of the inner life. Integrity is the word we would use today. Later on, a disciple of Jesus John in his epistle, 1 John, would define it. In 1 John 3, 7, he said the one who practices, and that's habitually present tense, as a lifestyle, righteousness is righteous, just as he, Christ, is righteous. The one who does not do habitually what is righteous is not righteous. He made a distinction. He called out the inner life. He called out the real you. And Joseph here is called by the Holy Spirit a righteous man. He was the real deal inside and outside. His moral life was intact in the dark and in the light. How would you like for God to choose one time to put you in the Bible, and that's what he said about you? I would have loved to have met and been mentored by a man like that. So this is Joseph. His character was righteous. And I think his, his, his goodness was growing because something powerful had been happening to him. He was becoming even more in line with God. Why do we know something powerful was happening? Well, in John 19, 38, when John introduces him, John adds, not only was he a member of the council and a good and righteous man, but he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So that's been added into our understanding. So not only was this good and righteous man who'd been well-raised and who had a good heart doing the right thing, but he had given himself to Christ as a disciple. So he was being changed by that very relationship. Now, the scripture says that he, he did this secretly for fear of the Jews. When it talks about the Jews there, that's shorthand for the leaders, the Sanhedrin. And so... He had been on the edge of the crowds for weeks or maybe months. He'd heard Jesus preach. He'd seen Jesus heal. He'd watched Jesus talk. And he had heard Jesus talk about sin and his coming cross work, particularly in the last months of his ministry. And at some point along the way, Joseph in his heart of hearts had said, I I believe him. I believe he's Messiah. I want to be his disciple. And change had begun to move through his life. Now, it says he was doing this secretly for fear of the Jews. He had considered the message of Jesus. He'd be convinced about it, but he was intimidated by the environment he was in every day. Now, before you condemn Joseph for that, think about you and I out in the secular world. Have you ever had a moment or a time or a season in your life where because of the environment of the people you were in, socially or in a work context or in some kind of context that really mattered to you, people that had power over your world, that you were not, let's admit it, I will, because I've been out in the marketplace for years before I came back into the ministry. There were seasons when I was intimidated by the society I was in. Can you relate to Joseph a little bit? Everybody that's honest nod, everybody that's not nodding, you guys can leave. I'm just telling you right now. Everybody, right? Right? So we relate to him, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a desiring disciple of Jesus. And we're going to see that even that changes. So first thing I see about the realities of Joseph was his character. It was real. He'd become convinced about Christ and he's growing. The second thing is his courage. Now you see him break out and we see some things about him. This is where we're really going to develop his story a little bit. We're going to go to a couple of the Gospels to do this. So second reality, character number one, his courage. Now look at our text, verse 51. Yeah, he struggled. He was a good and righteous man, but he had not consented to their decision and action. Who's they? The, San, the Sanhedrin. When did that happen? In the early morning hours before, the, before this, in the three sham trials of Jesus. The Sanhedrin had all gathered for that, and Joseph... it it appears may have been the only one who had not consented to the injustice. It's remarkable. He had not consented to do it. Now, we don't know how it happened, but the word here is interesting. Again, consented, very unusual word. It, it, It meant literally to place or deposit something together. And it it is derived from the custom of putting something into a jar or a pot as a vote. Sometimes when you voted as a group of people, there was a there was a, a, a jar that, that you contain your votes. And if you wanted to vote for something, you walked up, had a little little stone or maybe had a little piece of parchment with your name on it. And you put your vote into the jar. And that's what this Greek word means, to put into the jar. And basically it's it's stating here that somehow when they came to vote to condemn Jesus to death, Joseph had not put his vote, vote into the jar. How this happened, we don't know. Maybe he didn't go to the meeting out of protest. Maybe he was in the meeting and he didn't speak to condemn Jesus. Or maybe they even had an individual vote. The the way I look at that whole trial was not an individual vote. They violated their own rules. They were supposed to vote from the youngest to the oldest publicly, all 71 of them. But it was instead a big mob. Remember the story? They all just gathered their voices, violated their own rules, and shouted Jesus guilty. So my guess is... Joseph saw this, and he did not condemn Jesus. So he had not consented. He had courage even at that point. And then he had the courage to step into the light and to go and seek to bring Jesus a decent burial. This man named Joseph, this man, verse 52, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So now you see him breaking out in courage. First, he stood against all of the most powerful people in his world by not condemning Jesus. Then now that Jesus has been taken to the cross and publicly executed, humiliated, the most defiled and despised person in the city, now Joseph comes forth into the light of public scrutiny to give him a burial. Joseph must have felt, I have to do what has to be done. And you know what he did? He did what no one did, but what had to be done, giving honor to the king. I mean, other people could have stepped forward. The disciples could have stepped forward. They were hiding, wrapped in greater fear. The poor women from Galilee had no means to do this, no place for him. Joseph steps forward and he does what no one else would. With courage. Now, let's take a, take a look at a couple of, of the other gospel writers. Let's go first to Mark chapter 15. The same story is told in his gospel in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, that'll be important in a minute, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Mark says he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Mark adds something. He took courage. That's our quality about Joseph. Why did it take courage? I can only guesstimate. But... uh, I'll tell you, it took courage to walk into the judgment hall of Pilate after what Pilate had been through with the Jews over Jesus. Pilate, a bloodthirsty Roman ruler with total power, had already been pushed into a corner, publicly humiliated, pilloried by the Jewish leaders into condemning a man that he himself knew was innocent. The last thing Pilate probably wanted was somebody coming into his world again with the name of Jesus of Nazareth on his lips. So I can imagine Joseph was intimidated. But also, Joseph knew that all the Jewish council had been behind this, and only he had not. And he knew that the Jewish council had had created this incredible spectacle of the crucifixion. And he knew that he would probably have trouble with them too. Now, interestingly, if you put all the gospel accounts together, actually the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders, had actually gotten there a little bit ahead of Joseph. They had come to Pilate as well. And if you put the narrative together, they had come before him. If you go now from Mark to, to John and his gospel in chapter 19, you can get that backstory. Now, Jesus had already given up his physical life on the cross. We studied that last time. The Romans didn't care about the bodies that were on those crosses. They had two procedures for those. One is they would leave them on the cross. If they didn't need to use that, that cross again, they would just leave the body on there to be picked apart by the birds and the animals until it decayed right off the cross. Or if they needed to, to place it uh, somewhere else, they would pull it off the cross. I'm sorry if I'm getting graphic here. And they would throw it into an always burning pit of garbage located outside the walls of Jerusalem called Gehenna. Those are the two things that were done to bodies. And that's probably what would have happened to the body of Jesus had not Joseph been led to intervene. Now, crucifixion also was a lengthy process of execution. I told you before that it usually took two to three days for a person to fully and finally suffocate on that cross. And the Jews knew this, and uh, they knew that the bodies would stay on the cross. Well, this happened to be against some of their religious laws, and if you go to John 19 and verse 31, it tells us, that since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the sabbath for that sabbath was a high day the jews the sanhedrin the leaders asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and then they might be taken away now this is a little graphic. the jews had a law about the sabbath in fact they went back to deuteronomy i think it's chapter 21 that said if any person is executed you never let their body stay overnight on display So they had that law from Deuteronomy. But the Sabbath was about to to begin at 6 p.m., that very point on Friday. And it was a double point of problem if you let a body stay on a cross during the Sabbath. The Jews are thinking, well, there's still a day or two for Jesus and these others to die. We've got to solve this. And sadly, there was a solution for this. The Romans crucified so many people, and they were so efficient about what they did that they had a method to hasten a person's death on a cross. Remember I said you died on a cross, not by blood loss or pain. You died by suffocation because you had to pull yourself up on the nails, push up on the nails and pull up on your wrists to gather each breath. And it took two or three days for a person to become exhausted enough that they couldn't do it anymore. And then you died of suffocation. If they wanted to hasten the process they broke the legs of the victim. This was such a common practice in the Roman times at, in history as we see it that the Romans actually had a Latin word for it, crucifragium, fracture of the crucified. It's, it's a hideous thing. But the soldiers who were part of the crucifixion detail had a heavy mallet, long-handled mallet always present. And if they needed to hasten the crucifixion, they'd walk up to the cross and shatter the lower leg, both lower legs of the victim, who could then no longer push himself up and gain a breath. And so within minutes, it was over. Now we see in John 19 that they asked Pilate to do this. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and then they might be taken away. Verse 32, so the soldiers came. Who were they? The soldiers who had been part of the crucifixion, detail of Jesus, still on duty. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, the thief on the left, and of the other who had been crucified with him. Those thieves were still alive and they quickly died. One of them, by the way, went to paradise that day. but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead remember he supervised his own death death didn't happen to Jesus Jesus just decided my mission is over I'm of Lord God Almighty I'm in command of the breath in my lungs and I give my spirit unto the father he caused his own physical death and just at the moment he decided he died six hours into crucifixion because the great work was done So they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear as they had been taught to do. My research tells me that that was one of the first things that they taught a Roman soldier to do. It was a kill stroke with a spear. They taught them which ribs to place it between, how far up to go to make sure you punctured the heart. It was a quick method of execution and it was a method of making sure someone was fully dead and so that's what the soldier did and at once there came out blood and water i read a doctor's analysis of that this week it indicates this spear punctured both the pericardium and the chambers of the heart itself there was no doubt this was a fatal fatal blow but jesus was dead already dead by crucifixion, dead by his own decision, dead by a spear's wound. And so we see the Bible going very clearly into detail here, gruesome as it is, please excuse me, but it's God's word. John appeared to have been there, who wrote this next verse. He who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about himself. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Why did John have to put this into his narrative? Because a myth was circulated after the resurrection of Jesus that has been circulated in different forms to this day. The latest was in the 1800s by a skeptic named Frederick Schleiermacher, that the reason the tomb was empty on the third day was because Jesus never really died. He didn't die on the cross, he simply passed out. Or as Hugh Skonfeld said in his book, The Passover Plot, when I was a college student, he created a conspiracy with his disciples and when that vinegar was brought to his lips, it knocked him out and made him look dead so that he could be placed in the tomb and then taken out by his followers some days later to fake a resurrection. There's a lot to both of these ridiculous ideas, but the myth had already been circulating that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He never was dead. He would just passed out or was drugged, whatever. And John says, I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. So this was done and placed in scripture to explode a myth that we knew or God understood was coming Something else, John John writes, verse 36, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Remember I said God is about a bigger story? This is a story that took place in, in a few hours on a hillside in Jerusalem, but it's part of a salvation story that Ephesians says was was. was created before the foundation of the world, and it shows God's sovereignty over all these events, and it identifies Jesus as the Messiah, because many prophecies were made about Jesus in the Old Testament, right? Dozens and dozens and dozens of them. A huge number were fulfilled in the last 24 hours of his life that marked Jesus out. His death is different than any death in world history. It was the death of the Messiah, and parts of this death were predicted by prophets centuries before it happened. Two things were predicted. One was that a bone of him, not a bone of him, would be broken because he was the great Passover lamb. And when you had a Passover lamb in your Jewish household, the law said you will not break a bone in that little animal when you, when you prepare it and serve it. And in Isaiah, I believe, no, Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 34, verse 20, the scripture says when the Messiah is killed, not a bone of him will be broken. Yet here he is, killed by a a manner of death, crucifixion, that required your bones to be broken at a certain point, very possibly. But Jesus is exempted from that. God is sovereign, folks. God operates over the wickedness of people to carry out a great design. And even here, in a moment, John points out that God fulfills prophecy. Through Through the actions of an unknown soldier who says, I'm not breaking those legs. He's already dead. It also says that he would be pierced because Zechariah says in the great future time, in the last days, when Jesus appears visibly to the world, having received his church to himself earlier, but then coming back with us, those Jews who are alive at that time will turn and see him as he returns, and a mighty revival will sweep through their hearts. But part of it be- is because Zechariah 12 says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And so in every way, John says, the scriptures were fulfilled. Prophecy. So there's a big story operating over every story. So Joseph is, is kind of a, an integral part of all of this. So that's what John tells us had happened just before Joseph walks in the room. Now go back to Mark, if you will, and you'll just have to look at this on your Bibles, whether you're holding a paper Bible or looking at a digital Bible, it doesn't matter to me. If you go back to Mark 15, it tells us that this had all happened before Joseph showed up. In Mark 15, it says, verse 43, Joseph had come in and took courage and went to Pilate. Verse 44 says, when Joseph came in and asked for the body of Jesus, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Why? Because the detail hadn't come back that had been sent to break Christ's legs. And summoning the centurion who was in charge of the detail, presumably, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Corpse, the Greek word only for a a dead body, a dead body fallen to the ground. So again, it's more amplified proof here that Jesus was dead. It destroys the myth that he had passed out, he was drugged, he was in a semi-comatose state, he was dead. If you count up all the witnesses I just told you, including Pilate, that's six. Six witnesses in an hour to the, the actual death of Jesus. So here is how the courage of Joseph kind of completes the overall great story. Stick with me now. As we get to the rest of what he does. So there are realities about Joseph. First of all, his character, good and righteous. Secondly, his courage before the Sanhedrin and into the throne room of Pilate, gaining the body of Christ. And then we know that he gained the body of Jesus and took it with him. Go back to John again. Sorry to move you around in the Bible so much, but it's probably a good idea, right? So in verse 38, Joseph goes and Pilate gives him permission to take the body. And in verse 38, it says, so he came and took away his body. In that is such pathos. Joseph alone went back to Calvary and he took down the body of Christ. He, He cared for Jesus in the most intimate way a person could. Luke says he took it down. That means the body of Jesus was on that upright post. And Joseph must have had to gain a ladder. And he must have had somehow to wrench the nails out from the feet first. Or maybe pull the feet over the nail. And then he had to figure a way to wrench the the nail out from that wrist and have that arm fall on his shoulder with the bowed head of Christ and that crown of thorns bumping his breast, blood moving across his garments. Pull the nail out of that other blessed hand and have the full weight of the Savior on his body and shoulders and stumble down that ladder and lay Jesus out on the ground. Put a shroud under him and carry him to the tomb. I can't imagine the moments that that must have entailed and the heartbreak because, you see, Joseph was like all the others. He dearly loved Jesus, but he believed he had clearly lost Jesus. He didn't really understand that Jesus was really going to rise. He was burying a dead man. And he does it out of care, out of love. Either at the foot of the cross or soon after that, Joseph is met by somebody else. John tells it in John 19. He came and took away his body, verse 38 of John 19. And then Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, joins him. Nicodemus, another Jewish leader, who had come to Jesus by night months earlier and asked him about the depth of his teaching. And Jesus was... The one who looked into Nicodemus's eyes and says, you're a teacher of Israel, but you don't understand. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, the scripture tells us, rolling these things around in his mind, also became a believer in Jesus. And now he steps out of cowering into courage in his hour. And Nicodemus, a wealthy man, knew about Joseph taking down the body. Maybe he met him at the foot of the cross and he brought something with him to the tomb. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds, 75 pounds in weight. The Jews did not embalm. They, they took a body, they washed it, and that's what Joseph and Nicodemus would have done in the shadow of the tomb very probably. And then they took a wrapping, a little bit like a mummy, and they, they, they poured these spices, some of which were gummy and some of which were powdered, And they poured it into the wrappings and encased the limbs and the the torso and the legs in this wrapping, and it was up to 75 pounds of weight. Over a few days, it would harden so that it would be a casing around the body to prevent the odor of the body from reaching the air. It was the thing that you did with an honored person. It was an act of love in the final hour, and Nicodemus makes sure it's done because it was the burial custom of the Jews and it was certainly something fit for a king. And so they come together in this hour. He was encased in this and then a shroud was wrapped around that. And then verse 41 says, Now in a place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb, Joseph's tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. And they placed him there. I find this also fascinating because it fulfilled another prophecy, another part of the great story. Another way Jesus was identified as the Messiah, as God said, when he's killed, they're going to assign him a death with the wicked, but in his death he will be with a rich man. Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. The Romans intended for Christ to be pulled off that cross and thrown to the dogs like a wicked man. God intended for his son to receive the honor that Joseph gave him, and he ordained Joseph to be there and his tomb to be ready so that Jesus would bury, bury, be buried like a rich man in his death, fulfilling Prophecy. Do you see the great story? Now, John mentioned something else, verse 42. Stay with me, the details are powerful. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they lead Jesus there. What's this day of preparation? And what's this about the Sabbath being close at hand? Go back to Luke 23, verse 54. It was the day of preparation. What was the day of preparation? It was that, it was Friday The day in which you prepared yourself for the Sabbath and also the Passover. And the Sabbath was beginning. When did the Sabbath begin? 6 p.m. The Jews counted their days differently in two ways. We go from midnight to midnight. The Jews went from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So when did the Sabbath day start for the Jew? 6 p.m. on Friday. When did it end? 6 p.m. the next day. So they counted their days based on that rotation of hours, but they also talked about a day in the sense that if anything happened in just a portion of the day, that was counted as ha- having happened in the day. Now, what is all this? What am I getting at? I mean, well, God set a divine deadline, and the, a Jew couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. Wrapping a body. And placing a body in a tomb is not only work, the the Jewish law said you couldn't touch a dead body on the Sabbath. And so they're hurrying is the point. They're hurrying to get it done before 6 p.m. rolls around and the Sabbath comes. That's important as well. That's very important. Because it fulfills yet another prophecy. This one by the prophet named Jesus Jesus had said multiple times, but particularly in Matthew, I believe, in chapter 12, he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And in other places, he talked about his resurrection occurring after three days in the Jewish mind. Well, for that to happen, Jesus had to be buried in the grave before the day ended on Friday, day one, before 6 p.m., He would have to have been in that grave for the entire Sabbath day. The next day, Saturday, you could call it that. And he would rise, have to rise in some portion of the third day, our Sunday. That is three days. That's important because they didn't know it, but under God's divine deadline they had to finish wrapping the body of jesus and placing him in the tomb sometime on friday does that make any sense to you starting to see how the wheels are turning the rest of you just nod and encourage the preacher yes (laughs) this is cool god's in charge of every detail of the death of his son to mark him out in history as the savior and so he puts these Jewish people into a situation where it's the late afternoon and they have to hurry and get it all done and they get it all done and the rock is rolled on Friday, day one. Through, through the Sabbath day, day two, and we're gonna see next time when we get into the, the next chapter, Luke 24, verse one, and on the first day of the week, day three at early dawn, boom, he's out of the tomb. He fulfills his prophecy, and this is all by people that just stepped up in a moment of time to do the right thing. I love that. Well, this is Joseph's story, and I know we have to hurry now. Reflections, just one, really. I mean, think about the courage of this man and the love of Jesus by this man. I mean, he was a secret believer, I get that, but he began to break through and become a vocal believer he reminds me of that text in Scripture that says, "With the mouth, with, with the heart, man believes." And Joseph was a secret believer, resulting in righteousness. That so he was a good and righteous man, Luke said. And with the mouth, he confesses, asking Pilate to go and take on the body of Jesus, is confessing, "I'm a Jesus follower." And I'm putting it all out here now. And knowing that the Jews would see you do that. And no, listen to this every member of the Sanhedrin would know with bitterness that Jesus made it to a tomb? What? We wanted him in the ravine outside being gnawed on by the dogs. Yeah, he got put in a tomb. Whose tomb? Joseph's of Arimathea. Wasn't he one of us? No more joseph lived with that he came out into the circle of courage and he left the inner circle i mean sometimes when you're successful and influential you're part of an inner circle a privileged few and they've got power and influence over others and and you get all the perks of that and that's an even harder thing to leave to leave an inner circle Maybe maybe you're at a management level in your company and your growing testimony for Christ is gonna hamper your relationships in the inner circle. You've got a Joseph decision to make. I can't think of a more powerful inner circle than a family. What power they have over us, our parents, our siblings. And, and yet, if your testimony for Christ is pressing you to be vocal about him, and you may lose that inner circle, you're making a Joseph decision. But b- that's okay, because if you leave the inner circle, you're in the courage circle with Jesus. And he's there. And that's what I would rather be. So, he left the inner circle for the courage circle, and I would just say, what about us? In every aspect of living for Christ, in speaking for Christ, in reaching the lost for Christ, in risking for Christ, don't ever stop that. You're in the walk of those that make an eternal difference. The tale of Joseph. Joseph. Now we come to the final portion, the tale of the women at the tomb. Go back to Luke 23, verse 55. Two verses dedicated to them, but oh, what powerful people. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments and on the Sabbath they rested. What's all this about? The women at the tomb, Well, you say, are you getting ahead of yourself, preacher? I, I mean, the women at the tomb, they show up, on the third day (laughs) no they were there on that day too they were at the tomb twice at least these two were they were there on burial day and resurrection day now many people followed Jesus many women followed Jesus who were these well there there were many Marys in the New Testament common name Miriam is the name Uh, the best known Mary in the Bible Mary the mother of Jesus this is not her A second Mary in the Bible, well-known as Mary Magdalene, came from from a town called Magdala in the Sea of Galilee. The scripture says she was a devoted follower of Jesus, partly because he had cast seven demons out of her. She was with him from the very beginnings of his ministry in Luke 8. She followed him, and she was, according to Mark's gospel, one of these two Marys. The other Mary was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, or Joseph, and she's mentioned a number of times in the gospel these women were on the hillside when Jesus was crucified i taught you about them last week and then i believe they lingered and i believe they saw joseph take down the body of jesus and nicodemus meet him and i believe they followed those two men with the body of jesus this is just me to the tomb and it says they saw the tomb verse 55 and how his body was laid dear horton and uh, not dear horton but uh uh Carson, D. A. Carson talks about the 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 fact that the the tombs were made with kind of an anteroom, kind of a a wide room in the in the beginning where people could be present at the burial, and then the actual niche was in further. Perhaps they were in the anteroom and they watched Joseph and Nicodemus wash and wrap the body of Jesus, but they saw where the body was laid. Two realities. In one reflection. The reality, number one, is they followed the Savior's body. I just described that to you. This had to be how it happened. How else would they have known? They had to have seen it. Now, as they watched this, they didn't know perhaps who Joseph and Nicodemus were, or if they did. I mean, these women were from Galilee. They didn't know who these men were, but they knew they were not part of the inner circle of Jesus. They'd been secret believers. And so, as you look at it, my thinking is they watched them wrapped the body of Jesus and they thought two things. Number one, we want to be part of this too. Those that loved him the most ought to be able to help. But the number two thing is they noticed how hurriedly this was being done because the Sabbath was coming and they didn't think his body had been prepared well enough. And so it says, verse 56, they returned to their homes and prepared spices and ointments on their own because they wanted to add to what had been done to the body of Jesus by Joseph and Nicodemus. And that's why they came back on the third day because they wanted to add their own spices to the body of Jesus and give him greater honor They wanted to give him honor, and they didn't think it was enough. And, of course, it wasn't because the Sabbath was coming. And so this was a hurried work. I just love that about them. This is my opinion. They were so devoted to him. Nothing was too much for Jesus. And so they decided to wait and They gathered their own spices that night while the Sabbath hadn't fully dawned. And then on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And we don't read chapter breaks in our Bible. So look at the next verse, chapter 24, verse 41. But on the first day of the week or at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking what? The spices they had prepared. You think that through. They followed the Savior's body. And secondly, they saw the tomb. That's important because there's another myth that was started about the resurrection, people said Jesus didn't rise from the tomb because, you see, when the women went to the tomb three days later, they went to the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong tomb in their grief, their confusion. They went to a tomb that had always been empty, and they thought Jesus had risen, but they went to the wrong tomb. Well, Scripture here says that's an impossibility. They saw the tomb, and they were inside of it to see where the body was laid. God explodes his critics. I'll just tell you that. Here's a reflection. Joseph and Nicodemus bravely came out of the shadows in this story. Let me tell you something about these women. These women never went into the shadows. They were always public believers, bold believers in Jesus. And yet they didn't know what was going on. They were mystified by this death, shocked by it, grieved by it, and like I said, didn't really understand the nature of the resurrection. But they were willing to love him. Would you be willing to be called on stage by God for the sake of his son, even if it was a great risk to you and you weren't even sure what he was doing? That's my reflection question for me. Remember, every action of each of these people proves that they did not believe Jesus was ever going to rise from the dead. That's important because many people say that, that, that this was something that they, they believe was coming. No, he was, they dearly loved him, but they thought they had clearly lost him. Nicodemus, if he believed Jesus was gonna rise from that tomb three days later, would not have bothered to buy 75 pounds worth of spices and ointment and go through the wrapping of the body of Jesus Christ. Joseph would never have rolled the stone. He would have been waiting. And Mary Magdalene and Mary of Clopas, they would never have made more spices that afternoon and and intended to come back three days later to give more honor to his more dead body. Not a one of them believed he was going to rise from the dead because in, in the great play, the great story, they really weren't aware of the surprise ending. God, the master playwright of this greatest story, wrote in his ending. And it was read in our hearing earlier in the service. Paul said, it's the most important part of the story. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance of the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. There's the surprise ending that was in place all along. God, the greatest playwright, snuck a surprise ending into the saddest story ever lived three days later. Yeah, he's like that.